The following episode contains many flaws and is the philosophies of men, or the philosophies of Glenn, mingled with humor. The decision to walk no more with the church members and the Lord's chosen leaders will have a long-term impact that cannot always be seen right now. If you choose to become inactive or to leave the restored Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, where will you go? What will you do? Where will you go? Where will you go? Where will you go? At first I was afraid. I was petrified. Kept thinking, where, oh, where would I go without you for my guide? And I spent so many nights just praying fervently on my knees. On my froggy knees, and I said, please. Won't someone up there answer me? I prayed to God. I prayed to God. In outer space, up there near Colab. With that white beard upon his face I should have seen it was a sham That you had no power or keys That your revelations were never Never revelatory So I had to go Walk out out the door door From my personal integrity You got nothing to teach me anymore Weren't you the one who taught me how to live like Christ? Do you think I'm stupid? That I'm stupid. When you don't take your own advice, oh no, not I. I will survive. Yeah, as long as I know how to love, I know I'll be alive. I've got all my life to live. I've got all my life to give. I will survive. I will survive. This is Infants on Thrones, the philosophies of men mingled with humor. We are the core. Welcome back to Infants on Thrones. I'm Glenn Osland, and this is episode 577, Infant General Conference, April 2019. And do you hear those birds? Can you hear? (laughs) I'm sitting outside right now in Bloomington, well, outside of Bloomington, Indiana. I'm visiting for the weekend to see my daughter in a musical. She's a senior in high school. She's going to be graduating this year. She's Ursula in A Little Mermaid. I'm going to see her tonight. I can't wait. And I drove out into the Hoosier National Forest to one of my favorite spots, this little ogle lake. It's kind of like my Onwalden Pond place. To record this conference episode, that's going to be a different conference episode than what you've heard if you've been following the podcast and you're looking forward to the infant parody conference. That's not exactly what this one's going to be. Although, I will tack on at the end of this episode one of our previous infant parody episodes, which is particularly good. I listened to it on my drive out here, and it made me laugh. (laughs) I love those guys, Randy, Jake, Heather, everyone that contributed to the episode that you're going to hear at the end of it. I think it was October 2016. Anyway, what I'm going to do today, I've got a couple of different things in mind. This is something that I hope that I can share with my uncle, my TBM uncle, who I talked about recently, 
with other family members, with other believing members, friends, and that you can share with yours. I hope that you'll want to, that it'll be good enough to do that. I'm going to go over an actual conference talk that was given in 1984 by Ronald E. Pullman. Now, I've talked about this conference talk in previous episodes. We did an episode many years ago, maybe nine years ago, on Mormon expression. And to set the stage, for those of you who aren't familiar, Ronald D. Pullman gave a talk that was about the church and the gospel, comparing what is the gospel, what is the church, what's their relationship with each other. He gave this as part of General Conference in 1984. And... uh, You're going to hear it today, and I'm going to comment on it. I'm going to comment. I'm going to insert myself and comment the things that I see in that talk um, that I find really, really important. And I I just think it's a great talk. But not everybody thought it was a great talk, you see, (laughs) because uh, I I don't know exactly who. Uh, President Benson was the prophet at the time. Boyd K. Packer was around. Uh, Bruce R. McConkie was still around. You know, they did not like what Elder Pullman said about the relationship between the gospel and the church. So he was asked or required, whatever, if there's a difference, to rewrite certain sections of that talk. And not only to rewrite it so that it could be published in the Ensign, but to stand in an empty tabernacle and be videotaped with a a cough track in the background to make it look like this was actually the original version that he gave. The problem is that in 1984, people started having VCRs in their homes and they were recording General Conference. And so when the updated, edited, censored version, we'll call this version two of Elder Pullman's talk, came out in the end sign, people who had seen it and had videotaped copies of it went, wait a second, there's some differences here. That's not what I remember hearing. And today you can go to YouTube, you can see the original version and the edited version, version two. That's where I got the information. I pulled it off of YouTube. And so that's what you're going to hear today. That's going to be Infant General Conference, April 2019, with an extended Easter egg going back to one of our parodies from 2016. So with no further ado, let's just jump right into this. Let's get to Elder Pullman as I'm sitting here outside in nature in one of my favorite places in the world, Bloomington, Indiana, the birthplace of Infants on Thrones, uh, to talk about this really important, I think very, very important conference talk from Ronald D. Pullman. Let's get right to it. Thank you, Elder Derek. We shall now be pleased to hear from Ronald E. Pullman of the First Quorum of the Seventy. My remarks this morning are directed primarily to those of you who have accepted the gospel and are members of the church, and to those of you who may be seriously contemplating such acceptance and membership. Really? That's that's who you're addressing this to? Well, hey, sorry to butt in here already to my butt in, but as you can hear, the microphone was popping and cracking as I was outside at that lake. So a couple of times I'm going to uh, cut in again just to give you a little better quality of audio and just re-say what I was saying there, okay? So yeah, if you hear that, that's what's going on. My remarks this morning are directed 
primarily to those of you who have accepted the gospel and are members of the church, and to those of you who may be seriously contemplating such acceptance and membership. Really? That's, really? That's, who, that's who you're addressing this to? Because I'm not considering membership at this point, but, you know, that's me. You're describing me. Or at least it certainly was in 1984. When I was 12 years old, I was a new deacon. I was still learning about the gospel that I had already completely and unquestioningly accepted. I was excited about the Aaronic priesthood that I had already been given. I had recently been given. And I was excited especially about the potential for ministering angels that was available to me. I mean, that was something that I prayed for. I really, really wanted that. But it's even more true now than it ever was. I mean, as odd as it is, because now I sit here with a more enriched personal understanding of what that gospel Of what that gospel means. You know, the gospel, the good news. It's that gospel that I first learned about through my years in nursery and primary and, you know, my men's program. It's the gospel or the good news that's been refocused and redefined through the crucible of life experience after life experience that used to be unquestioned, but now, now I relentlessly challenge. Now I relentlessly challenge and question, and I restlessly seek to better understand and to emulate in my life each challenging day after day. (laughs) Now, even though I no longer attend church, but I'm still on the books at least, and definitely really in my heart and my mind, a member, okay? You know, and and I'm an inherently worthy member at that, at least when it comes to the gospel. Maybe not what the church says, but we'll get into that from what Elder Pullman says later. But, But thank you right from the start, Elder Pullman, for directing this talk to me. And I'd like you now to show me what you got. And then I'll show you what I got. I'll show you what it means to me. You show me your kingdom, the way that it looks. And I'll show you the kingdom that I live in. And together, maybe they'll become the kingdom of God. But with complete honesty, sincerity, and respect, Elder Pullman, I want to hear what you say. I want to consider it. And um, we'll talk about it. Let's have a discussion now over this. That's what we'll do. Because for anybody out there who thinks that I'm not active, this is episode 577 of Infants on Thrones. I've been doing this for 10 years. You can't tell me I'm not active. You can't tell me that I don't take this stuff seriously, that I consider it. I'm going to do it in a different way than others do. We all do things in different ways than what others do. This is my way, and I'm going to do it and share it with you. And it's because I love it. And because I love you. And because I love me. It's all out of love. All right. Let's go, Elder Pullman. What do you got? Both the gospel of Jesus Christ and the church of Jesus Christ are true and divine. All right. Let me repeat that. Both the gospel of Jesus Christ and the church of Jesus Christ are true and divine. Now, I want to take a few minutes to break apart these two words, true and define, divine, <laughs> define, divine. What does it mean for something to be true? Let's start with that one. So, I don't know, a few months ago, maybe a year ago, we did an episode reviewing Sam Harris and Jordan Peterson, and they debated over the definition of truth. 
Now, Sam Harris, of course, takes a very precise and strictly scientific-ish definition of truth to say that truth must be empirically demonstrated, must be proven. And he gives an example of guessing how many hairs he has on his head, or maybe it was his back or possibly his knuckles. But the point was that the number that you guess will either be odd or even. And all you have to do is guess which one it is. Now, only one of those options is going to be true. And you can count the hairs then to find out what it is in that moment. Are there odd hairs or even hairs? There's only one truth. Even if tomorrow that answer changes. But there cannot be multiple, ambiguous, moving target standards to determine truth, right? Right, Sam Harris lovers? Right? (laughs) Now, Jordan Peterson, on the other hand, takes a more expansive and inclusive, and some might even say wishy-washy, right, Tom? Definition of truth. Peterson says that truth is something that's more about its usefulness or its value rather than its empirical makeup. And Peterson uses many examples of myth, like stories from the Bible, Cain and Abel, for example, to illustrate how stories or fictions that may not be true by Harris's standard can be true in the metaphorical sense of teaching important lessons and revealing better understandings of actual, complicated, messy human experience. Now, Peterson contends that we can never really truly get to absolute empirical truth of anything because our five primary senses have evolved to perceive only a fraction of what is out there in the world around us. And there's always some kind of interpretive framework between the observers and between what's being observed. And that framework then influences or biases what we see. So what we see isn't the truth of what's out there. It might be the truth of our frameworks. But that framework is the closest thing that we can ever actually come to touching actual truth. So what's my take on truth? Now, I am sitting here outside of Bloomington, Indiana, because I lived here for 20 years, because I came here to get a graduate degree in folkloristics, a master's degree and a PhD-ish from Indiana University. So I'm very well studied in the value, the very real value, the very true value of myths and fictions. So Jordan Peterson speaks to my understanding of truth very beautifully. Like I really get where he's coming from with it. And when I hear that some certain something is true, what I do now is I substitute that word in my mind to say that that certain something exists. So is it true? Does it exist? Is it actually a thing? Is it is? That thing is? (laughs) So for example, as I'm sitting here looking out over Ogle Lake, I'll transform myself, I'll transport myself to Scotland. (laughs) I'll think about the Loch Ness Monster and stories of the Loch Ness Monster and people who believe that there is a Loch Ness Monster. Is a belief in the Loch Ness Monster true? Well, listen to the way that I said that question. Is a belief in it true? Because to me, yeah, it is. Not because I think that there's an actual Nessie, Loch Ness Monster, Nessie, swimming around in that Scottish Loch Lake, Loch, Loch Lake, but because the belief in Nessie exists. People have it. People have that belief. It exists. It is That's true. That's a true thing. It exists in this world. It's part of everything that ever is, ever was, or ever will be. Isn't that the definition of truth? I mean, not that 
things in the past and things in the future will always remain the same, that there's no change. That's not what truth means. Truth means that it's every single thing, every iteration, every variation of something that ever was or is. And so this belief in Nessie, in the Loch Ness Monster, is part of that. It's true. It's part of that truth. And that belief impacts both the believers and the non-believers in their responses and reaction to it. And you can look at that and you can measure it. You can study it. You can understand it. So in this sense, I can accept, Elder Pullman, what you are saying, that both the gospel of Jesus Christ and the church of Jesus Christ are true because they exist, because they are, because they function in the lives of both believer and non-believer alike. So we can be on the same page there. But how about that other word, define? define. I did it again, divine. What what does he mean by divine? He, He means it's inspired by God, right? That it's divine in origin. Well, guess what? I can agree with that one as well, because now the way that I see God, I I see it, I think, in a sense that's consistent with the way that Joseph Smith spoke about God in the King Follett discourse, from which this podcast draws its name, that before the formation of this world or anything in it that ever is, was, or will be, or any other worlds or anything in them that ever is, was, or will be, before any of that, there was intelligence, Intelligence as we see manifested in the effortless flow and order of life and existence all around us. Intelligence that informs our very DNA. Intelligence that turns energy into matter. Atoms into molecules. Molecules into cells. Cells into the diversified organs and tissues that at a cellular level are constantly communicating with each other and transforming themselves to environmental stimuli all around us. It's happening all the time, but it's outside of our limited conscious awareness. We don't feel it even though it's happening. We're not totally aware of it, even though we can study and see that it's happening. But we can't possibly follow all of the rapid, constant, intelligent communication that's happening inside of our own bodies at the cellular level, let alone the intelligent communication that happens between cells and molecules that form them or the molecules and the atoms that form them or the atoms and the subatomic energy that forms them. There's a magnificent cosmic dance going on that we're all a part of, that we're all a result of. And nothing comes closer to the idea of God in my flawed and limited mind and my imagination than imagining the self-coordinated whole of all of this intelligence, all this swirling cosmic soup, all this communication that happens. And to say, okay, well, that's maybe what Joseph Smith was talking about, that great intelligence among a sea of intelligences who came to an awareness of itself, if we're going to put this in anthropomorphized metaphorical language, came to an awareness of itself. And from that moment sought to raise the awareness of all other intelligences in an eternally evolving process of growth and discovery. That's a Mormon belief, right? That has its fundamental core and consistency with things that Joseph Smith taught, that every piece of everything surrounding us in our world is made of this divine energy, this divine intelligence. And that's what allows me to agree with Elder Pullman here that the gospel and the church are also divine. So yes, Elder Pullman, (laughs) I'm with you. Sort of. This is my way of being with you. So there we go. Long tangent there. I'm not going to spend this much time parsing out every single word, 
But please continue, Elder Pullman. I am with you. Both the gospel of Jesus Christ and the church of Jesus Christ are true and divine. However, there is a distinction between them which is significant, and it is very important that this distinction be understood. Of equal importance is understanding the essential relationship between the gospel and the church. Failure to distinguish between the two and to comprehend their proper relationship may lead to confusion and misplaced priorities with unrealistic and therefore failed expectations. This in turn may result in diminished benefits and blessings and in extreme instances even disaffection. Wow. Yeah, I mean, totally. I agree with this so much. This, this was probably one of the first things, I mean, independent of this conference talk, one of the first things that started leading me out of the church was recognizing that there is a distinction between the gospel, and I'm going to spend a little bit of time after this to talk about what I mean by the gospel, and the church, and that there is a confusion between the two. A lot of times they're used interchangeably. I'm a member of the church. I'm a member of the gospel. I believe in the church. I believe in the gospel. I mean, it's used interchangeably a lot. And I think Elder Pullman recognized this clearly. It's very important to him. You can hear why. You can hear what he saw was at risk. And I can verify, in my case, it was one of these extreme cases that led to disaffection. Because the difference between what is eternal and unchanging and pure, which is the gospel, and the church, which is a man-made organization that risks what we, what we read about in ancient myths all the time, the hubris of mankind lifting themselves up to be as if they were God. I mean, isn't that the sin of the Tower of Babel, that people were lifting themselves up to try to get to where God was? Isn't that the problem with Icarus flying too close to the sun. I mean, there's so many examples of this where we recognize that there's this risk that we have when we're playing in a divine sandbox that we get confused and think that we're divine too, that we're unchangeable, that we have to be revered and respected and unquestioned, just accepted, you know, all these things that go with that. So I'm with you here as well, Elder Pullman, and this difference between the, the gospel and the church that you're seeing, I want to hear what you have to say about it, and let's riff on it a little bit more. Let's get back to you. As I attempt to describe and comment upon some distinguishing characteristics of the gospel and the church, noting at the same time their essential relationships, it is my prayer that a perspective may be developed which will enhance the influence of both the gospel and the church in our individual lives. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a divine and perfect plan. It is composed of eternal, unchanging principles and laws which are universally applicable to every individual, regardless of time, place, or circumstance. Wow, I... I love this too. I love this so much. So that so the way that Elder Pullman 
is framing the gospel is it's these unchangeable what did he say principles rules plans I mean these are words you can substitute different words in here something like the law of gravity the speed of light that's applicable to everybody everywhere regardless of what situation they're in so what are they What are these unchanging principles and laws that are like the law of gravity or the law of electromagnetic connection? (laughs) What are these things? I've come up with six that are are important to me. And you may agree or disagree. But here, here are six things that I think, like when I think of the gospel that's unchanging, that can be of benefit to everyone, everywhere, at any time, regardless of situation or circumstance. I think of these six things. I think, one, the worth of a soul is great. Two, there must needs be opposition in all things. Three, forgiveness, repentance are keys to living life in this world of opposition. Four, charity, love, is the greatest gift of all. Five, there is a divine salvation from the effects of sin. We've got to get out of jail free card, so to speak. And six, God speaks to man in his own language. So when I think about the first one of those, that the worth of a soul is great, I mean, does anybody argue that? I mean, you know, like what is a soul? Who knows what a soul is? Is a soul maybe even just a metaphor for individual people? It doesn't matter to me. What, what this is saying is that every single person is worthy of respect. They're, they're worth being listened to and, and expressing who and what they are. There's, there's a value in that. Every single person, all of the differences, all the varieties, I think that's an eternal truth. I think it extends beyond human form into the animal world, into the the trees that I'm looking at right now, (laughs) every form of life, there is a value. There's a worth. And we all work together in this great ecosystem. You know, the the bird and the, or or the, the bee and the flower work together. We look at them as separate things, but you take one of them away, the other thing can't exist. And we all have these relationships. So the worth of a soul, the worth of life, is great. And so if, if I'm using this as a gospel eternal litmus test and I want to look around and see are, am, am I living a life that is in harmony with the gospel, I have to ask myself, am I living a life where I'm respectful of every person, of every living thing? And of course I fall short into that, but that's still the litmus test that I want to strive for. And that's where I see that the gospel principle saying that the worth of a soul is great is, is tremendously valuable and true. The second one, that there must needs be opposition in all things. You can't have up without down. You can't have hot without cold. You can't have pleasure without pain, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's easy to kind of dismiss this if you've already walked away from Mormonism and you go, oh, the Book of Mormon, blah, blah, blah. There must needs be opposition in all things. Ha ha. But look at the ancient traditions, other religious traditions in the world. The yin and the yang symbol, for example. 
I mean, this is not a new idea to Mormonism. And it's not a new, it's, it's not a foreign idea to science. When they look at the very smallest energetic bundles of energy that we've been able to theorize, <laughs> the, the, the quanta energy, there's up quarks and there's down quarks. There's, there's this or that. There's opposition. There's always a struggle. There's always an in. There's always an out. It's just an eternal principle. So if you're, trying to, if you're trying to create a world where you only have up but you don't have down, where you only have in but you don't have out, you're, you're kind of setting yourself an impossible task, right? You're not really grasping the entire picture. That's a rejection of the gospel principle that there must needs be opposition in all things. Now, that doesn't mean go out and kill somebody. It doesn't mean it's okay to go out and be the contrast or conflict to other people. But just that it's there, you can't eradicate it. So what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with that understanding and that recognition that there just is opposition in all things? How do you live in that world when part of that is just this severe pain and suffering that's caused by you to other people, by other people to you? It's unavoidable. And that's where this third thing comes in for me. Forgiveness and repentance are the keys to living life. Forgiveness just means, okay, I accept that I'm not perfect. I accept that you're not perfect. All right, I'm not going to hold on to this. I'm not going to let this offense, this slight, this horrible injustice be something that prevents me from, which is the next one on my list, charity, love, And just the freedom of being able to express who and what you are. Again, all forms of life. I was looking at this. um, I don't know anybody who's been to Bloomington, Indiana. It's it's called Bloomington because of all of the the life, the the bloom. And and here I am in April when the spring is just starting. And there's, there's life that's sprouting up everywhere. And I was looking at these telephone wires that have like one of those like little yellow things that covers the wire and in in between the telephone wire and this yellow plastic covering some weed or vine had crawled in and it was sprouting up through the outside of it and i just thought how indomitable life is you know you you leave this this man-made stuff all these man-made structures alone for 100 200 300 years they're going to be overgrown because life doesn't stop life is going to express itself and I, I equate that somehow. <laughs> somehow in my mind, I connect the dots between that and love and charity and growth and expansion and allowing these things to happen, allowing everybody to have their place. Now, of course, we pull weeds and we trim bushes and we do all these kinds of things and we do that with each other too. But I don't know, there's, I, there's, there's a balance there. And charity, that, that's, that set of scriptures in Moroni about charity being the greatest love of all, not being puffed up, not being self-seeking. Ah, I love that. I love it. It's one of the greatest gospel truths that I've ever been taught. And, and trying to apply that into my life, whether I'm in the Mormon church or I'm not, is just super important to me. And number five, the the story of the atonement, which I don't take literally, but I don't mind if you take it literally. 
you know, it, it, we all we all intersect at the same place. That what this is telling us is that there is a get out of jail free card. We don't have to worry. You know, fear not, have faith. We will be redeemed. This divine energy that makes us all up, that's indestructible, that is eternal, that goes in and out of form all of the time. Right now, the swirling energy that is me and, you know, kind of governed by my ego, my sense of self, that's going to die. That's going to be gone someday. But the energy, these atoms that are in me, they'll continue. And there's got to be some communication that's going on between, like I said earlier, things at a cellular level to molecular level to atomic level. Things we don't really need to worry about, I think. That's where I'm at now as I'm looking out over my on Walden Pond and breathing in the beauty of nature all around me. (laughs) Very zen. Which rhymes with Glenn, if you didn't know. And then number six, that God speaks to man in his own language. I mean, the things I'm saying to you right now might resonate with you. It might not. Other things that other people say will resonate with you more, or it might not. But the divinity that's all around us that communicates, it's really, it's like everything, I started seeing everything as kind of like this big Rorschach test where we, we put up these dots, these, these designs and say, what do you see? What is it to you? And the real magic comes in the way that we react and respond to what's around us. That's, that's inspiration. Not in the creation of the Rorschach test, not in the exact form that we put that Rorschach inkblot into and say, every Rorschach inkblot must look exactly like this one or it's not a true Rorschach inkblot. God speaks to man in his own language. So when I say that I believe in the gospel and that I strive to live a more gospel-filled life, this is what I mean. These are things that I think apply to every individual regardless of time, place, or circumstances, which includes sexual orientation and gender identification and race or ethnicity or alternative non-mainstream persuasion of any kind. And like it or not, that also includes coffee drinkers, and drug addicts, deadbeat husbands and fathers, emotionally abusive mothers, rapists, child molesters, liberals, conservatives, Trump supporters, feminists, general authorities, nursery teachers, everyone, all of us, each separate and unique, but essentially connected, all of us, a connected piece of this great divine fabric of life that we're all intrinsically interwoven into. The good news gospel is that everyone is worthy. Everyone is worthy. Conflict and opposition are unavoidable. The self-discipline and the self-mastery of forgiveness and repentance and charity are the ways to find personal peace in a chaotic world. This is how and why we are saved from our sins. This is how and why we can lift our spirits with hope, even when surrounded by tangible darkness and loneliness and fear. And we learn these divine gospel truths at our own pace, in our own language, in ways that differ from person to person, from place to place, and from culture to culture. And yet, at the core of all of these varying expressions can always be recognized. You can always see the truth of these things if you have eyes to see and ears to hear. (laughs) 
right? That's how I see things. This is where I am in my testimony of the gospel. So please, Elder Pullman, continue. Please help me see the distinctions that you see between these universal and eternal gospel truths and their relationship to the church. The principles and laws of the gospel never change. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is a divine institution administered by the priesthood of God. The Church has authority to teach correctly the principles and doctrines of the gospel and to administer its essential ordinances. And using words like priesthood and authority and divine, this is going to be a place where we differ quite a bit, I think, Elder Pullman. And that I think that every person who is alive, just, just by virtue of that first gospel truth that the worth of a soul is great, I think that everyone has the authority to speak on their direct experience with the divine in the way that they experience it in every way. And since I believe that everyone has that authority, and if you want to call it priesthood, we can call it priesthood, then I also have to grant that the Mormon church has it. You know, where we're going to differ is where it's like this big cookie cutter thing that says that it has to be only this way and only by these people who have this power that they can give or take away from anyone. Uh, no. No, the, the, the divinity, the spark of life, the light of Christ, whatever you want to call it, the Spirit of God, all of these things, the Holy Ghost. Not only are they available to everyone, but they're being manifested constantly whether we're aware of it or not, by every single person. So I agree with you that the church does this, and the church has done a a remarkable job of galvanizing a membership that recognizes the value that can come in creating an organization around these kinds of eternal gospel principles. But like you said, there's a danger if a distinction is not made between the difference between these gospel principles and the church, or what you're going to call as a delivery system, do with it, how they see themselves in relationship to it. And that's what you're going to be talking about here. And I'm really glad that you did. And uh, let's go back to it. The gospel is the substance of the divine plan for personal, individual salvation and exaltation. The church is the delivery system that provides the means and resources to implement this plan in each individual's life. Procedures, programs, and policies are developed within the Church to help us realize gospel blessings according to our individual capacity and circumstances. These policies, programs, and procedures do change from time to time as necessary to fulfill gospel purposes. Underlying every aspect of church administration and activity are the revealed eternal principles as contained in the scriptures. And you know what I've come to understand? And again, I I, I want to approach this with some humility. I'm passionate about what I'm saying. I'm passionate about the way that I view these things now, but I also recognize my own flaws and limitations. So I want to be very clear and upfront about that. But the way that I understand this is that these policies and procedures, these revelations, you know, what Elder Pullman's talking about is specific to the confines of the Mormon church. 
But there are other churches that have done these exact same things in other parts of the world at other times. And you can do comparative studies of these things and find the similarities. I, I, ha- I have done that. And you can see that revelation comes, like I was saying before, it just kind of bubbles up into people all the time. The inspiration and the revelation. And the, the thing that I think was so magnetic and exciting to my early ancestors who joined the Mormon church and rubbed shoulders with Joseph Smith and all of those people. I I had ancestors that did that in Kirtland, ancestors that did it in Nauvoo. They were excited by this idea of direct experience, direct communication with the divine. And they wanted to codify it and to create an organization and a community of like-minded individuals that all wanted to, to live in the same kind of harmony with the world. Then, of course, it kind of got calcified. I mean, you've got Brigham Young who came along and did all the stuff and, and started putting boundaries and walls around what people can consider revelation and inspiration and that sort of thing. And Joseph Smith did, did that too, put up those boundaries and, and walls. But that's what the church is now, this delivery system that's come to see itself as much more than a delivery system that we'll see very clearly when you compare this original talk that Elder Pullman gave to the changes that were required of him by the church when the church said, oh, no, you can't put us as subordinate to the gospel. No, we are just as important, if not more than important, more than important than the gospel because we are the ones with the keys. We're the ones with the priesthood. We're the ones with these ordinances that are necessary for salvation. If you don't have them, then, you know, you're S-O-L in a very clean, eternal sense of S-O-L. <laughs> and I, I just can't accept that. I think that's what Pullman was warning about when you start confusing the relationship between these two things. And, you, and, and the thing that excited people about the Mormon church at the very start, their direct experience with the divine, which still happens. I mean, of course, members of the church still have direct experience with the divine. It's, it's just in this small, confined and sometimes misdirected box that is man-made. And hey, if that's what works for you and you agree to the terms, fine. Then that's where you are. That's probably where you need to be. It's probably where you want to be. It, like, a, like a larva inside of a cocoon. Not to be pejorative, not to be dismissive, but just to, to celebrate the growth of nature that's all around us that constricting beliefs and dogmas can't stop. They try to stop, but they can't stop. And people grow beyond them and expand beyond them when they're ready, when they want to. And then they discover an entirely new world of pain. (laughs) And then they grow from there, and that forms another crucible. Anyway, let's go back to what Elder Pullman says, because I'm getting into some crazy talk here. As individually and collectively, we increase our knowledge, acceptance, and application of gospel principles, we become less dependent on church programs. Our lives become gospel-centered. Wow, becoming less dependent on the church. And the leaders of the church didn't like that. Why? What's wrong with that? 
Like when, when you're raising your children and you're teaching them how to walk, you want them to become less dependent on your fingers that they're holding on to to help them balance as they're taking those steps. Why wouldn't you want them to become less dependent on you and to learn how to walk on their own? I mean, you still want to protect them and love them, right? But isn't this a great message? I love this message that you live a gospel-centered life, not a church-centered or a church-sheltered life, that you, you evolve as you grow and you learn and you experience the world. You get to a place where you don't really have to depend on the church anymore because you've learned it. You've got it. And you just go out and you live it. I love that message. The, uh, the first presidency of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, apparently they didn't. <laughs> but, but you'll hear how this was changed when you hear the redacted or the, the updated, the second version of this coming up later. Not yet. Still working our way through the first one. Sometimes traditions, customs, social practices, and even personal preferences of individual church members may, through repeated or common usage, be misconstrued as church procedures or policies. Occasionally, such traditions, customs, and practices may be even regarded by some as eternal gospel principles. Under such circumstances, those who do not conform to these cultural standards may mistakenly be regarded as unorthodox. Or, what's worse, unworthy. Or, in other words, worthless. If you don't conform, you're considered worthless. So in order to have a sense of worth in an organization where things like this happen, you must conform. Even if all you're conforming to are people's traditions that are flawed and imperfect and are misconstrued for being gospel principles or church principles or equivalent Now, if you're honest with yourself, whether you're a believing member of the church or not, you see that that happens all the time. And you recognize there's there's problems with that. So what do you do? What do you do when you encounter those problems? I don't know. What, what, What does Elder Pullman have to say about it? May mistakenly be regarded as unorthodox or even unworthy. Yes, that is what I said. In fact... The eternal principles of the gospel and the divinely inspired church do accommodate a broad spectrum of individual uniqueness and cultural diversity. The conformity we require should be according to God's standards. And where better to understand God's standards of conformity to variation (laughs) and expression than sitting out here in nature where I am right now. And there's just so much variety. There's so much variety. Who, who is it that says that they can speak for God and go, okay, well, we'll accept this, but not that. If it exists in this world, if it exists in this world that is built upon a sea of divine energy, if that's really what's going on, and it exists in this world, then isn't this God's standard? Isn't that what God's standard? Don't we see it all around us? You talk about things like the problem of evil, 
well, God's responsible for there being evil in the world, so therefore there must not be a God. Yeah, or it's part of it. (laughs) There must be opposition in all things as a part of it. And anybody who tells you that God's standard would exclude those things has a limited understanding of who and what God is. I don't know. That's the way that I see it now after 10 years of podcasting, starting with Mormon Expression and continuing with seven years of Infants on Thrones that we're almost at now. And I feel like kind of coming full circle in some way as I'm sitting here outside of Bloomington, Indiana, where this whole Infants on Thrones podcast thing started for me in the first place. Things in my life are kind of going on similar as where they were when this started in the first place. I don't know. It's a... It's a searching time for me personally, and I'm grateful to be able to share my thoughts with you through a podcast. I'm grateful that it's something that you find value to and that um, you respond to in the different ways that you do. But isn't this a a great talk? I mean, of all of the conference talks, this has got to be up there as as one of the best conference talks that I've ever heard. Let's go back to Elder Pullman. The orthodoxy upon which we insist must be founded in fundamental principles and eternal law, including free agency and the divine uniqueness of the individual. It is important, therefore, to know the difference between eternal gospel principles, which are unchanging, universally applicable, and cultural norms, which may vary with time and circumstance. The source of this perspective is found in the scriptures and may appear to be presented in a rather unorganized and even untidy format. The Lord could have presented the gospel to us in a manual, systematically organized by subject, perhaps using examples and illustrations. However, the eternal principles and divine laws of God are revealed to us through accounts of individual lives in a variety of circumstances and conditions. I love that so much. And and the only thing I would add to it is that the variety extends far beyond the Mormon church. The variety of people's expressions of their direct experience with the divine questions of what it means to be alive, to what it means to exist and to suffer in this world. That's the way that God reveals himself to us. That's the way that truth reveals itself to us. I love this. I love it. I love it, love it, love it, love it, love it, love it, love it. Reading the scriptures, we learn the gospel as it is taught by various messengers at different times and places. We see the consequences as it is accepted or rejected, as its principles are applied or not, by varying degrees and by many different people. And whether the stories that are in these scriptures, which are only one form of human expression, by the way, whether these stories are true and historically factual and accurate, or whether they're made-up fictions and metaphors for other things, they exist, they are, there is a truth that is behind them that can be discovered if we want to look, if we want to see what it is. And that truth... That meaning, the value, is going to be something very personal, very subjective, that I, I, I wish everyone was empowered to feel confident in their own subjective interpretations 
of these things and not feel like it has to conform to, oh, this is what this person says, so that's how I have to feel too. Anyway, I love what Elder Pullman is saying. In the scriptures, we discover that varying institutional forms, procedures, regulations, and ceremonies are utilized, all divinely designed to implement eternal principles. The practices and procedures change. The principles do not. Through scripture study, we may learn eternal principles and how to distinguish them from and relate them to institutional resources. As we liken the scriptures unto ourselves, we can better utilize the institutional resources of the modern, restored church to learn, live, and to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. A favorite scriptural source for me is the Old Testament book of Leviticus. It is basically a handbook for Hebrew priests and contains many rules, regulations, rituals, and ceremonies which may seem strange and inapplicable to us. It also contains eternal principles of the gospel which are familiar and very much applicable to everyone. It is interesting and enlightening to read the 19th chapter of Leviticus, noting the principles and the practices and rules. In the first two verses we read, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the congregation of the children of Israel. Here is the principle of revelation. God speaks to his children through prophets. He does so today. Continuing, the Lord says to Moses, Say unto them, Ye shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Many years later, Jesus, in these words in the Sermon on the Mount, said it, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. And how is that? What, what does that perfection mean of our Father which is in heaven? Does it mean exact following of rules? Does it mean obedience? Or does it mean a complete wholeness of everything that is, including all of the bad stuff and the good stuff? That's, that's where I take it now. So to me, when I hear something like this, be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. What it means is be perfectly comfortable with everything. Don't let anything get in your way of love and charity and forgiveness and all of those gospel principles. Don't let your ego get in the way. Like God doesn't let his ego get in the way here is an eternal principle there follow other eternal principles some from the ten commandments also included are rules and programs intended to implement these principles among the ancient hebrews in their particular circumstances for example the divinely directed responsibility to care for the poor is taught a program is presented, namely providing food for the poor 
by leaving the gleanings of the crops and not reaping the corners of the fields. Current programs to care for the poor are much different. The divine law is the same. Yet another principle underlies both programs, ancient and modern. That is, those being assisted are given opportunity to participate in helping themselves to the extent of their capacity. In verse 13, the principle of honesty is taught, accompanied by a rule requiring employers to pay employees for their work at the end of each day. Generally, today, that rule is not necessary. The eternal principle of honesty is implemented by other rules and practices. Verse 27 contains a rule about personal grooming. It is clearly not applicable to us. However, we also have standards of dress and grooming. Neither is an eternal principle. Both are intended to help us implement and share gospel principles. Uh, yeah, I'm not really sure which eternal gospel principles are being exemplified through dress and grooming standards. <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure I would include that. I, I suspect that... Elder Pullman was really just wanting to kind of poke the finger at the church and go, come on, you guys, stop being so nitpicky about tattoos and what people wear and earrings and those kinds of things. You know, that the, really the eternal principle that he was leaning towards was that worth of a soul is great and, and acceptance and not letting these other things get in the way. But then he had kind of had to tie it back in, and he, so he just said that. But <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I can't see how it fits with an eternal principle. Can you? I don't know. Maybe you can enlighten me. But um, anyway, let's go on to the next one. The principle of forgiveness is set forth in the same chapter of Leviticus, verse 18, concluding with the second great commandment, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, with the added divine imprimatur, I am the Lord. Every church member has not only the opportunity, right, and privilege to receive a personal witness regarding gospel principles and church practices, but the need and obligation to obtain such assurance by exercising his free agency, thereby fulfilling one purpose of his mortal probation. Without such assurance, one may feel confused and perhaps even burdened by what may appear to be simply institutional requirements of the church. Indeed, it is not enough to obey the commandments and counsel of church leaders in response to study, prayer, and by the influence of the Holy Spirit, we may seek and obtain an individual personal witness that the principle or counsel is correct and divinely inspired. Then we can give enlightened, enthusiastic obedience, utilizing the church through which to give allegiance, time, talent, and other resources without reluctance or resentment. Now, I, I, I kind of hate to keep harping on this, especially because you, you probably haven't heard the second version of this, what it was changed to. But you, you can hear in what Elder Pullman is saying, he's not dismissing the church as a valuable thing. I mean, he's saying we should still give it allegiance and still be a part of it. But even the suggestion that 
we we develop our own direct experience, direct testimony of these things, and not rely on the leaders. It, that in and of itself was so threatening for some reason that they made him change it. <laughs> and, and again, you'll hear that coming up in the next version. But why? Why is what he's saying here about the church not good enough to, to stand? Why, why did it have to be changed? What's wrong with it? Happy, fulfilling participation in the church results when we relate institutional goals, programs, and policies to gospel principles and to personal eternal goals. When we understand the difference between the gospel and the church and the appropriate function of each in our daily lives, we are much more likely to do the right things for the right reasons. Institutional discipline is replaced by self-discipline. Supervision is replaced by righteous initiative and a sense of divine accountability. I, I don't know. This sounds perfect to me. This sounds like something right out of Ralph Waldo Emerson on self-reliance. I mean, this is this is the value of a church in teaching principles on how to live your life, and then you go live your life. I don't, I don't know what's wrong with this. The church aids us in our effort to use our free agency creatively, not to invent our own values and principles, but to discover and adopt the eternal truths of the gospel. Gospel living is a process of continuous individual renewal and improvement until the person is prepared and qualified to enter comfortably and with confidence into the presence of God. Except that under my way of seeing things at least, we're already in the presence of God. We're, we're we're created by this divine energy. It's all around us. It's everywhere around us. Heaven isn't something that we look forward to in the eternities. It's where we are right now. It's what, it's what we make of it. It's what we're doing with it. It's the, it's the purpose of having the gospel teachings in the first place. To be able to live a more peaceful, harmonious life in the presence of God that's all around us and this joy that's all around us. And not get distracted and bent out of shape by all of these other things that are here. That's what's freeing. That's what's freeing about the gospel message, the good news that we are in the presence of God already. Live it. Live it to its fullest. My brothers and sisters, by inclination, training, and experience, most of my life I have sought understanding. By the accumulation of facts and the application of reason, I continue to do so. However, that which I know most surely and which has most significantly and positively affected my life, I do not know by facts and reason alone, but rather by the comforting, confirming witness of the Holy Spirit. By that same Spirit, I testify that God is our Father that Jesus of Nazareth is the only begotten of the Father in the flesh and that he is the Savior and Redeemer of all mankind and each of us. Through his atoning sacrifice, redemption and exaltation are offered as a free gift 
to all who will accept by faith, repentance, and sacred covenants. And Elder Pullman, I, I mean, I, I appreciate so much everything that you're saying here and, and the approach that you're taking to be able to use that intellect and reason to, dis- to, to show the distinction. First, first, to come to the understanding of it yourself, the distinction between the gospel and the church. And then the reason that it's important to recognize that distinction. And, you know, as you are now bearing your testimony about, dare I say, a myth, the story that we get in scriptures that are expressions, human-shaped expressions of the divinity that's in us, that you can also see a distinction between those myths and the truths that they're teaching. That they're not the truth itself. They are that intermediary framework that Jordan Peterson talks about that I mentioned earlier that helps us better understand what is true on the other side of it. God is our father just as much as he's our mother. Jesus as the only begotten of God in the flesh, just as a metaphor for every single one of us being begotten of God the divine energy that is us in the flesh. There's, there's more to do in parsing out the distinctions between things. And, I, and you know, a, a, a church that was run and operated by the Ronald D. E. Pullmans of the world, I think would be a much more inclusive place to be able to explore those kinds of ideas. But he was asked to change it. We're, we're about to get there. We're about to get there. Let's, let's hear him finish it up, and then we'll move on to the next one. May each of us continue to learn and apply the eternal principles of the gospel as they are revealed in the scriptures. Check. Utilizing fully and appropriately the resources of the divine restored church. In the words of the Book of Mormon Nephite leader Pehoran to his friend Captain Moroni, May we rejoice in the great privilege of our church and in the cause of our Redeemer and our God. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. Do you think it's any coincidence or accident (laughs) that he invoked Pahoran and Moroni? At the close of this, do you remember the the story of Pahoran and Moroni? It was at a time of war, and Pahoran was like the government leader, and Moroni was the military leader, and Moroni's out in the field thinking, why is it that we haven't been getting our support from the government? Why aren't we getting our supplies? And he sends a rebuke. He rebukes Pahoran. Very much like Elder Pullman is gently rebuking the church here, right? It's no accident that he ends this with Pahoran and Moroni. And what's Pahoran's response? To Moroni's sharp rebuke. It's one of love and charity. I mean, it's an example. It's a great story of saying, look, uh, I'm, I'm still on your side. We're having issues here. We're having problems here. I want to send you support. There's things going on that I'm not able to, but you're doing awesome. Keep doing it. Keep going. I don't, I'm not upset with you for being upset with me. I understand it. I get it. That's the spirit that... <laughs> Elder Pullman is invoking at the end of this talk because he knew what he was stepping into. He must have known what he was stepping into. 
Of course, I, I don't know whether the hierarchy of the church that made him change this is the Bahoran in this case or the Moroni in this case, but they did step in and say, all right, you're going to have to make some changes and we're going to try and pass this off as if what you said never was said. We're going to try and erase it from the annals of history. Unfortunately, there were people with videotapes who had recorded it. There were newspapers who reported on it when they tried to do this change. Oops. Can't do this anymore. How many times had they done it? How many times had this happened? When the authority of the church was threatened, the authority of the church is being threatened. Don't take away our authority. Then what purpose or reason do we have to exist without our authority? Without us being the gateway by which people must enter and pay obeisance, obedience in order to get to God. That's us, big and important. Don't take that away from us. All right, now that I've poisoned the well a bit, <laughs> let's listen to the redacted, or not the redacted, the changed version. It's just, it was just changed. It's just different. My remarks this morning are directed primarily to those of you who have accepted the gospel and are members of the church, and to those of you who may be seriously contemplating such acceptance and membership. Well, that was certainly nice that they let him keep that, even though they made him frame it as my comments this morning, as if he's not standing in front of an empty tabernacle. Like, who is he talking to? This is just a performance. It's a sham. It's a show. Ah, jeez. Jeez. These guys. These guys. There must needs be opposition in all things. So way to go. Thank you for being that. Thank you for being that and showing me what it looks like. Both the gospel of Jesus Christ and the church of Jesus Christ are true and divine. And there is an essential relationship between them that is significant and very important. Yeah, an essential relationship, but not a difference, right? You had to, you had to take out the word that there was a difference because it's just like the, the essential relationship because they're both like so, so important, so big and important. You got, not difference, essential relationship. All right, got it. Understanding the proper relationship between the gospel and the church will prevent confusion, misplaced priorities, and failed expectations, and will lead to the realization of gospel goals through happy, fulfilling participation in the church. I wonder if when Elder Pullman was eating crow and reading these words, he knew that preventing misunderstanding now was directed at him. <laughs> you know, that you didn't understand correctly the relationship between the gospel and the church before, but now you're going to, and you're going to be happy about it. You're going to be happy about it, and you're going to realize your goals. <laughs> oh, I wonder if he knew. I think he did. He's a smart guy. I think he did it, and he just was eating crow. Ah, Elder Pullman, I love you, man. I love you. I love you for going through this. Wow. Wow, 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 wow. Such understanding will avoid possible disaffection, and will result in great personal blessings. As I attempt to describe and comment upon the essential relationship between the gospel and the Church, 
It is my prayer that a perspective may be developed which will enhance the influence of both the gospel and the Church in our individual lives. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a divine and perfect plan. It is composed of eternal, unchanging principles, laws, and ordinances which are universally applicable to every individual, regardless of time, place, or circumstance. Oh, okay, so now they're universally applicable to everybody, no matter who they are. <laughs> so, so now, now we're saying that everybody's got to follow this. Everybody's got to fall in line. Everybody's got to conform, no matter who they are. That's a nifty little sneaky change to this. Way to go. Way to make it worse. Gospel principles never change. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the kingdom of God on earth administered by the priesthood of God. Let us not forget that it is a kingdom of dumb kings. I, no, I don't think they meant to go that way. The Church has authority to teach correctly the principles and doctrines of the gospel and to administer its essential ordinances. Did we mention that they're essential? Like, they're really essential. Like, these ordinances are essential. If you don't get them, you're, you're just, like I said before, SOL. The gospel is the divine plan for personal, individual salvation and exaltation. The church is divinely commissioned to provide the means and resources that implement this plan in each individual's life. Which is why there's not a difference. There's just an essential relationship. You know, the, the gospel is the ladder that you need to climb in order not only to be saved from the shark-infested waters beneath, but to get exaltation, get above, get to the highest rung of the ladder. And the church is the ladder that you climb to get to the highest rung of the ladder. They're the same thing. They're essential. Essential. They're the same thing. And the church is what's going to tell you every step you need to take on that ladder, every rung you have to grab. Follow the prophet. Procedures, programs, and policies are developed within the Church to help us realize gospel blessings according to our individual capacity and circumstances. Um, Elder Paulman, could you please remind everyone that the Church is being led by God all of the time, that all of this is happening under divine direction, that there really is no separation between the divine gospel and the divine Church. It's, it's all the same. It's under divine direction. Could you please remind them of that, Elder Paulman? Please, please do that in this next sentence, please. Please. We demand it. Under divine direction... Nailed it! These policies, programs, and procedures may be changed from time to time as necessary to fulfill gospel purposes. Underlying every aspect of church administration and activity... Did he just say underlying? Like, did he just admit that there's lies? I mean, underlying? No, that can't, that can't be what he meant. ...are the revealed eternal principles contained in the scriptures. As individually and collectively we increase our knowledge, acceptance, and application of gospel principles, we can more effectively utilize the Church 
to make our lives increasingly gospel-centered. Oh, I see. So the gospel is actually meant to enhance our engagement with the church, not that the church is meant to enhance our understanding of the gospel so that we can live a gospel-centered life and not be so reliant on the church. It's, it's, it's the other way around. The gospel makes us better church members. Beautiful. That's just... Whew, nice. The eternal principles of the gospel implemented through the divinely inspired church apply to a wide variety of individuals in diverse cultures. Therefore, as we live the gospel and participate in the church, the conformity we require of ourselves and others... Yeah, we're just going to come out and say it. The conformity that we require. Yeah, let's, let's, let's not hide this light under a bushel. Let's just make sure that everybody knows conformity is required. Conformity is required. Okay, moving along. The conformity we require of ourselves and others should be according to God's standards. The orthodoxy upon which we insist... Uh, Brother Packer, Elder Packer, I'm not sure that, that everyone's going to understand the conformity required. Um, is there another way to say that? Could we talk about um, maybe the orthodoxy upon which we insist? Okay, can we just double, double down on that one, please? The orthodoxy upon which we insist <laughs> must be founded in fundamental principles, eternal law, and direction given by those authorized in the church. Ooh, fundamental and authorized, two of my favorite words. A necessary perspective is gained by studying and pondering the scriptures. Reading the scriptures, we learn the gospel as it is taught by various prophets in a variety of circumstances, times, and places. We see the consequences as the gospel is accepted or rejected by individuals and as its principles are applied or not. In the scriptures, we discover that varying institutional forms, procedures, regulations, and ceremonies are utilized, all divinely designed to implement eternal principles. You can see what that means, right? That, that, that's pretty clear. The practices and procedures change. The principles do not. Upon that we must insist also. Because change, you see, is not consistent with God's standard for nature or living. As you look around and you see in nature, nothing ever changes. Leaves never fall from the trees. There's never winter or spring or summer or that other season. It's just always all the same. There's no death. There's no cycle in life. Things just stay the same always. So don't be afraid of change. We'll keep you safe. We'll give you a sense of certainty that you can predict and always feel safe. That's what we will provide to you. Things don't change. The gospel doesn't change. The church doesn't change. Not really. Things just stay the same. Be comforted in that message of truth. Through scripture study, we may learn eternal principles and how to relate them to institutional resources. As we liken the scriptures unto ourselves, we can better utilize the restored church to live learn and share the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
That's right. Let's let's not let's not leave out the importance of sharing the gospel message with others because if we learned anything from Leon Festinger and his book When Prophecy Fails, it's that when prophecy fails, the best way to redouble your belief is to go out and seek new converts. Oh, oh, wait, 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 wait. Uh, is that really the reason we're doing it? Wait, wait, is it? Is that that, that book that um, talked about cognitive dissonance maybe for the first time, I think coined the phrase When Prophecy Fails by Leon Festinger? Everybody should read it. How do people respond when the people don't come, the aliens don't come at the time they're supposed to? Do they give up the belief and walk away? No, they go out and they get converts and they add more people to it. Because if you can convince more people that what you're doing is true, then it helps you believe that it's true too. So let's make sure that we've got that message in here, that the gospel is important to share, share it, share it. Don't question it. Don't question it. Don't challenge it. Share it. I know at one point they said, seek to obtain my word before you declare my word, but we're not doing that anymore. Just declare it. Just declare it. Just declare it. A favorite scriptural source for me is the Old Testament book of Leviticus. It is basically a handbook for Hebrew priests and contains many rules, regulations, rituals, and ceremonies which seem strange and inapplicable to us. It also contains eternal principles of the gospel, which are familiar and very much applicable to everyone. It is interesting and enlightening to read the 19th chapter of Leviticus, noting both the principles and the rules and practices. In the first two verses we read, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the congregation of the children of Israel. Here is the principle of revelation. God speaks to his children through prophets. He does so today. Continuing, the Lord says to Moses, Say unto them, Ye shall be holy, for I the Lord your God am holy. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, said, be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Here is an eternal principle of the gospel. And in this case, they really do mean like the perfect kind of obedience thing, like obey perfectly what the church says. Let's double down on that one. <sighs> there follow other eternal principles, some from the Ten Commandments. Also included are rules and programs intended to implement these principles among the ancient Hebrews in their particular circumstances. Just like we do for you today, you see. You see how that fits, right? Right, 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 right. For example, the divinely directed responsibility to care for the poor is taught. A program is presented, namely, providing for the poor by leaving the gleanings of the crops and not reaping the corners of the fields. Current programs to care for the poor are much different. The divine law is the same. Yet another principle underlies both programs, ancient and modern. That is, those being assisted are given opportunity to participate in helping themselves to the extent of their capacity. We just, we just need to make sure that people aren't getting a, a free handout because there's been some changes in the church from the days 
of Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon and the, oh, what was it called? <laughs> oh, it was the United Order, right? You know, when, when the church was more socialistic than conservative Republican. You know, uh, President Benson, who was the prophet of the church at this time, I'm sure made, made certain that charity was defined through the gospel of Ayn Rand and self-reliance, uh, which isn't bad, but I mean, it, it's a far cry from the United Order. It's a far cry from the United Order, and it's a far cry from the natural order that exists in the world that is God's standard, right? And um, the think not for the lilies of the field or whatever, because they'll get their due. You know, just help other people. Don't worry about all these other things, and we're going to set parameters on it. That's that's political influence creeping in. But anyway, just a little side note, folks. Just a little side note. In verse 13, the principle of honesty is taught, accompanied by a rule requiring employers to pay employees for their work at the end of each day. Generally, today, that rule is not necessary. The eternal principle of honesty is implemented by other rules and practices. As evidenced by my standing in front of an empty tabernacle, pretending that this is part of the original (laughs) general conference talk that I gave, with a cough track and uh, an amen that you'll hear at the end of this that was inserted. That's the kind of honesty in the eternal principles. You know, it doesn't have to do with people getting paid at the end of the day, but, I mean, it's important, right? Verse 27 contains a rule about personal grooming. It is clearly not applicable to us. However, we also have standards of dress and grooming. Neither is an eternal principle. Both are intended to help us implement and share gospel principles. Yeah, again, let's emphasize the sharing of the gospel principles here because nobody's going to want to join a church with a bunch of tattooed, stinky, <laughs> just like riffraff of the earth. You know, we, we've, got to, we've got to follow the model of the Zoramites and have fine dress and, you know, like really get up there on our rammy and talk about how good and awesome we are and show that in everything that we do and how we dress and how we look in our standards of grooming. Standards of grooming are important if we're going to share the gospel and expand our customer, our membership. The principle of forgiveness is also set forth in the same chapter of Leviticus, verse 18, concluding with the second great commandment, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. With the added divine imprimatur, I am the Lord. Who is guiding divinely this church, mind you. So the Lord and the church are basically the same thing. We just want to remind you of that and put that here. If you go against the church, you're going against the Lord, people. That's, that's what we're trying to say. Every church member has the opportunity, right, and privilege to receive a personal witness regarding gospel principles and church practices. Without such a witness, one may feel confused and perhaps even burdened by what may appear to be simply institutional requirements of the church. We should obey the commandments and the counsels of church leaders. That wasn't in the first one. But also 
through study, prayer, and by the influence of the Holy Spirit, we should seek and obtain an individual personal witness that the principle or counsel is correct and divinely inspired. Then we can give enlightened, enthusiastic obedience, utilizing the Church through which to give allegiance, time, talent, and other resources without reluctance or resentment. Happy, fulfilling participation in the Church results when we relate Church goals, programs, and policies to gospel principles and to personal eternal goals. When we see the harmony between the gospel and the Church in our daily lives, we are much more likely to do the right things for the right reasons. Yeah, yeah, not not doing the right things for the right reasons for the reason that I said before that you've just kind of instinctively learned the gospel principles and it's just a new habit that you've developed. No, no. The reason now that you do the right things for the right reasons is because you see the harmony between the church and the gospel. And because you see that harmony, then you know that you can trust the church and the gospel because there's that harmony and you'll never have to leave the church. You just follow the church. You just obey the church. That, that's, I mean, this is revealing the insecurity of these church leaders that don't leave us. Don't leave us. Don't tell us we're not important. We're vitally important. Don't tell us we're not vitally important. When you see the harmony that we provide, you'll recognize and you'll stay with us and you'll be happy that way. You'll be happy that way. We promise. And you won't be happy any other way. Trust me, you will not. Who do you think you are to be happy without us? No. You'll be happy with us in harmony with the gospel. We will exercise self-discipline and righteous initiative, guided by Church leaders and by a sense of divine accountability. The Church aids us in our effort to use our free agency creatively. Yes, you are free to creatively (laughs) conform, which we insist to, but conform in, in as creative a way as you want to conform. D- don't be creative in the sense that you create your own form. Conform to our form. The church is first. And then your free agency, uh, you know, you can, conform, you, can, you can like, I don't know, as long as it's reverent. Um, I don't know. There's probably other some conditions that we could put on it. But there's, yeah, you, you can be kind of creative. You can, you, I mean, you can be kind of creative in the way that you conform. Well, we will allow that not to invent our own values, principles, and interpretations, but to learn and live the eternal truths of the gospel. Gospel living is a process of continuous individual renewal and improvement until the person is prepared and qualified to enter comfortably and with confidence into the presence of God. Because it is very important for us and our sense of importance to remind you that you are not already in the presence of God, to remind you that you are quite separate from him, in fact, and that the only way that you can get into his presence is through us. That's really an important message for you to know and important that you don't think that you can do it without us. Which is kind of what I said before. I, I, just, I just want to make sure that you get this. 
okay? Like a hammer over the head. Make sure that you understand. We, the leadership of the church, our priesthood ordinances are essential for salvation for you to get back into the presence of God. And anybody who tells you that you're already in the presence of God right now, eh, probably they're probably of Satan. They're probably lying. They probably want money from you. They probably want you to just join their Patreon page and support them as they make podcasts. That's probably what they want. So don't listen to them. Listen to us. And give us 10% of your income. <laughs> My brothers and sisters, by inclination, training, and experience, most of my life I have sought understanding by the accumulation of facts and the application of reason. I continue to do so. However, that which I know most surely and which has most significantly and positively affected my life, I do not know by facts and reason alone but rather by the comforting, confirming witness of the Holy Spirit. By that same Spirit, I testify that God is our Father, that Jesus of Nazareth is the only begotten of the Father in the flesh, and that He is the Savior and Redeemer of all mankind and each of us. Through His atoning sacrifice, Redemption and exaltation are offered as a free gift to all who will accept by faith, repentance, and sacred ordinances. In exactly the same way that the car that I drive was a free gift to anyone you know, paying for it with money. May each of us continue to learn and apply the eternal principles of the gospel, utilizing fully and appropriately the resources of the divine church. In the words of the Nephite leader, Pehoran, may we rejoice in the great privilege of our church and in the cause of our Redeemer and our God. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Yeah, they actually put in that amen at the end of it, you know, so you could hear the congregation that was hearing him when he gave this to an empty tabernacle. They said amen. Piped in. Very much like you are about to hear in this upcoming extended Easter egg throwback to, I think it was our October 2016 Infant General Conference, which is quite brilliant, by the way. Like, Jake knocked it out of the park in this one. Randy is on great form. Bob doing his oaks. Heather. Heather. And I, I, I did some okay stuff. It was all right. It wasn't really my best effort. But why, why even do the parody in the first place? I mean, it's two different approaches, which I think kind of gives the same result of really closely looking at the messages that we're getting from the Mormon church, questioning them, examining them, exposing them for how we see it, and then publishing that for anyone to listen to and to respond to whether you agree with the way that we see it or not. It's what we've been doing on Infants on Thrones, coming up on seven years now. And uh, 
I don't know how much longer, I don't know how much more gas is left in this tank. But, uh, you know, anyway, here you go. That was, that was April 2019 General Conference, a review of Ronald E. Pullman, which I think is one of the most fantastic stories that I've ever come across in, in my years of podcasting, this, this thing that happened with Pullman and what it reveals about the church at the time. And that's not, that's not to say that this is how every member of the church is. I mean, of course not. Of course not. But now that you've heard it, now that you know it, what are you going to do about it? I mean, I, I can tell you what I did. I show you what I did. You can, you can listen to hundreds of hours <laughs> of episodes of, of me talking about it with my friends here on Infants on Thrones. There's other ways to respond to it. And they're all perfectly good, perfectly valid, whatever, whatever, whatever. Here is your extended Easter egg of, an, of a parody episode. For those of you who just want parody, here it is. It's funny. It's funny. For those of you who are going to get turned off by it, eh, give it a shot. Turn it off when you can't hear it anymore. <laughs> anyway, uh, thanks for letting me do this today. I've really enjoyed it. And especially doing it here in this location where I've been the entire time. It is is so beautiful here being in the presence of God as I am with nature all around me and, and a reverence for that nature and a respect that I've come to understand in different ways over the course of my life, including the last several years as a podcaster with infants on thrones. All right, here you go. It's Infant General Conference again. All right, everybody, let's get ready. We're about to start. President Monson, are you tweeting? He's tweeting. Who gave him his phone? All right, everybody sit down. Oh, I love this chair so much. It's time to put on neckties. Adult diapers might be nice. It's time to mock God's leaders in general conference. Time to rebuke apostates and feminists and gays. The world is very scary in general conference. Why do I always come here? I guess we'll never know. It's inner outer darkness to watch this hot air blow. So now throw in your earbuds. Keep both hands on the wheel. And now let's get things started. All Why right, I'll get, get things started. started. That Ballard guy just farted. On the most cut and miracle, slightly miracle, raging boner kill. This is what they call it. General Conference episode. <laughs> this is Infants on Thrones. The philosophies of men mingled with humans. We are the core. My dear brothers and sisters, welcome to the fourth Infant General Conference. We have an inspiring schedule for you today, which will include talks from President Prophet Man, Elder Cry Ring, Elder Lawyer Man, Elders White Guy 47A, 52B, and 64E, and Sister Happy Voice. We'll also hear some beautiful hymns about how much we are definitely on the right track. But first, I'll turn the time over to Elder Cryring for our sustaining votes. What? Oh, I see. 
It has been brought to my attention that it would be Elder White Guy 64D who will be addressing us. I apologize. Elder Cryring. Brothers and sisters, our dear leader, President Monson, has invited me, his right-hand man, and first counselor, take that great thought, to present the names of the general officers in Area 70s of the church to you for your sustaining vote to keep up the farce of common consent that has long been abandoned. But it's in our canon, so what are you going to do? It is proposed that we sustain Thomas Spencer Monson as prophet, seer, and revelator, and president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Henry Bunyan Eyring as first counselor in the first presidency, and Dieter Friedrich Anyway, Dieter Uchtdorf as second counselor in the first presidency. Those in favor may manifest it. Those opposed may manifest it. <laughs> what, no lawyer-like discipline this time? You see, brothers and sisters, this is what happens when you leave you suffer from premature gesticulation and verbal incontinence. And the agitators are probably gay anyway. Eh, just a little bit. Moving on. It is proposed that we sustain the 12 white guys from the Wasatch Front as members of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles and lesser prophets, seers, and revelators, especially depending on their seniority. Those in favor, please manifest it. Those opposed, please so indicate. Oh, Moving oh, on. It. it gives me great sorrow to report the passing of Elder Per G. Mom. And as if to overtly confirm that women have no status in this church outside of the identity of their husband... I give my condolences to Sister Mom, without mentioning even so much as her first name, much less her maiden name and middle initial. Don't want to give women any crazy ideas. And finally, it is proposed you sustain the rest. All in favor, manifest it. Any opposed? President Monson, the voting has been noted. That's how you say it, dear. We invite all those who oppose to contact your state presidents because we sure as shit won't give you apostate asses the time of day. For the rest of you, thank you for your continued loyalty and support. Peace.
brothers and sisters. Today I'd like to speak to those of you who might be leaving the safety of the good ship culturally imperialist Zion and venture into the shark-infested waters of the outside world. You might be thinking of leaving for various reasons. Perhaps you have an issue with the church policy. I'm not referring to any policy in particular, mind you, just, you know, any policy. Or Maybe you have an issue with some aspect of church history you may have learned about in certain essays on a certain website. Or maybe you have some sort of deep character flaw that makes you get offended all the time or give up like a lazy bum. The point is that if you're thinking of drifting off into a sharknado of sin, let me ask you one thing. If you leave, where will you go? What will you do? Think about everything you're giving up. If you stop believing in the version of heaven we've described to you, who will teach you how to get there? If you reject the Book of Mormon, where will you go to revere racist pseudepigrapha as scripture? If you reject the Pearl of Great Price, who will give you the fake Egyptian translations to study? If you stop believing in the power of the priesthood, who else will tell you how important our sexist hierarchy is? If you stop going to the temple, how will you fulfill what we taught you about God's neurotic technicalities for the salvation of the dead? If you stop going to church, where will you go to waste hours of your precious free time being bored and uncomfortable? If your children don't attend primary, who will indoctrinate them? If they leave the youth program, where will you find older men to interrogate them about their sexual behavior alone in an office? If they don't go on missions, who will charge you money to enroll them in an unpaid sales force? If you reject the proclamation on the family, who will instill you with homophobia? If you don't accept polygamy, who else will ask you to share your husband with women you've never met in the eternities? If you stop believing in Joseph Smith's prophetic calling, where will you go to sing praises to a manipulative charlatan? In short, when you leave Mormonism, who will keep teaching you all the Mormon beliefs you no longer believe in? Now, to some of you, that may sound like a bizarre, warped way of asking a question, since, ostensibly, the people who leave Mormonism because they don't believe in it are leaving Mormonism because they don't believe in it. So, it would seem pointlessly circular to ask them where they'll go to essentially keep participating in the religion they're rejecting, but I have a good explanation. You see, I haven't really conceptualized the church not being true in my life, so I can't see things from their point of view in any way whatsoever. It's easier for me to see the rest of the world as a footnote to the obscure religion over which I preside instead of the other way around. 
So I've chosen to describe their existence after Mormonism, strictly in terms of Mormon beliefs, rather than a way of living that's separate from Mormonism altogether. Anyway, for those thinking of stepping into the gaping maws of the Kraken that awaits them overboard, I urge you to rethink. Trust me, it'll all work out. Consider this. Through the many, 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 many years that my lifestyle and livelihood has depended on maintaining my belief in Mormonism, I've somehow miraculously been able to find justifications for every single thing that might cause me to doubt that belief. Isn't that amazing? What else besides the hand of God could explain such a miracle? I testify that if you really want to, and you look hard and long enough, you too can find justifications for untenable beliefs. To paraphrase a hymn, a mighty fortress is our motivated reasoning, a trusty shield and weapon. So I ask again, if you decide to leave the church, where will you go? What will you do? I hesitated to mention this before, but I feel compelled now to say that you've gained a little bit of weight. You lost some hair. You have more wrinkles than you used to. What I'm saying is you're no spring chicken. So if you leave, who will have you? Who else is going to love you? Who else will put up with all the imperfections we told you you have? Where else will you go to get all the nice things we promised? Who will protect you from the dangers of the world that we told you we were protecting you from? Do you think anyone will treat you as well as we did? Do you think you can do better than us? Do you think that you're so amazing that you don't need us anymore? Because if so... Maybe you deserve to be devoured by barracudas. But if you want to avoid dying a horrible death away from our protective embrace, I suggest you stay in the boat. In the name of abusive arguments, amen. Brothers and sisters, I stand before you today with a simple message. Monsonize your lives. Prophetize them. Remember, simplicity is not a vice, it's a virtue. This recalls to my mind the faint, illuminating glimpse of a story that I heard in the halcyon days of my youth a story of a faithful boy named Theodore, whose simplicity of faith brought him great tribulation, but also great joy. Known to his associates and schoolmates simply as Ted, this simple-minded boy had the faith of truthfulness of this work. When other boys teased him, he verily would not back down, even to the point where one night, on a scout outing, Ted's so-called friends heard him speak of the prophet Joseph Smith and of his simple wish that he, too, might be tested for the sake of his faith, yea, even to be tarred and feathered, and yet not deny his testimony. 
So Ted's so-called friends, seeing an opportunity to torment and to mock, heated up some tar that they found in a nearby tar place. And they rounded up some feathers from a few wandering birds. And in the spirit of torment and mockery, they placed that hot tar on young Ted's sensitive skin. And not only did Ted not deny his testimony of the truthfulness of this church, but in his simplicity of mind and simplicity of faith, he asked for them to tar him again. And again they did so, and again his faith was not shaken. Even to the point where his so-called friends his tormentors realized their grave error. And they did therefore repent. And from that day forward, they emulated the example of young Ted, that simple, faithful boy who had been tarred and tarred again, who from thence on was known simply as retard Ted for his simplicity of faith and his willingness to suffer, yea, even when he really didn't need to. Be ye therefore simple-minded, even simple-minded, as the faithful retard Ted. Blah, 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 blah. Let me begin my remarks by sharing a generic anecdote so bland that you've already forgotten it. That's right, I told it to you. You just can't remember. Maybe it was a little something one of my grandchildren said. Kids these days, am I right? Thank you for that gentle laughter. As I was traveling throughout the world, one sister asked me, Is there something specific we sisters should be focusing on? I answered, yes. Sisters need to focus on the doctrine of Christ. You can't get more specific than that. I'd like to base my talk to you women on a talk given by a man in the super special priesthood session. Now remember, it's okay for us to quote from that session, but if any of us tried to attend it in person, the men would feel violated, like someone had grabbed them by the priesthood. Sisters, we live in perilous times. These latter days are just the worst. Even worse than when they were the worst when I was a girl. These times have been foretold for millennia. In the Book of Mormon, Moroni gives a disconcertingly accurate description of our day. He describes war and rumors of war, great pollutions, murders, and robbing. He also describes people caught up in pride and in wearing fine clothes like those available for purchase at City Creek Mall. Wow, 
This is no generic fortune cookie. It's like Moroni's known us all our lives. In what other civilization or time period has there ever been war, robbery, murder, and pride at the same time? I can't even with these latter days. Can you? The Joseph Smith new and improved version of Matthew indicates that in the last days, even the very elect, according to the covenant, will be deceived. Even we saints, with our foolproof method of feeling our way toward truthiness by instinct, are in danger of being deceived by emotional manipulation and scare tactics. In the past decade, we have seen even some choice spirits leave the church. About half the people who leave are in what I like to think of as the basket of deplorables. They're feminists. They're homosexuals. They're intellectuals. But don't let's worry our pretty little heads about it, because now it's time for a quote barrage. Elder Gary E. Stevenson, one of the three shining new stars in the Wasatch White Sausage Club, has said, Heavenly Father's generous compensation for living in perilous times is that we also live in the fullness of times. Let me rephrase that in women's auxiliary language. These times are perilous for some, perky for others. President Russell M. Nelson, who also has a magical priesthood wand, made us sisters feel real important when he said, we need women who can detect deception in all its forms. Deception can come in the form of carefully worded denials, convenient redefinition of words, concealing truths that are not very useful or faith-promoting, and creating a culture where sincere questioning and dissent are punished. President Nelson continued, We need women with the courage and vision which contemporary prophets have retroactively imputed to our Mother Eve. Now for a real novelty, I'm going to quote Sister Sherry Dew. You know, the spinster who used to be in the Relief Society General Presidency? She has written, I believe that the moment we learn to unleash the full influence of converted covenant-keeping women, the kingdom of God will change overnight. You see, it's not a matter of having meaningful representation in leadership and budgeting decisions. It's really our own fault as women that we haven't learned to unleash our full influence from within our callings as nursery snack organizers. President Nelson thought Sister Dew's insight was awesome. He said, quote, that was awesome, close quote. Sisters, there are three things that we should be doing to build the kingdom of Zion. First, we must study and understand Jesus' atonement. I have recently become acquainted with a remarkable young woman named Josie. 
Josie suffers from bipolar disorder. She says, and I quote, One day, I remember sobbing, tears racing down my face as I gasped for air. But even such intense suffering paled in comparison to the pain that followed as I observed the panic overwhelm my mother so desperate to help. My mom whispered, I would do anything to take this from you. With a strength beyond my own, I declared seven life-changing words. You don't have to. Someone already has. Josie was not healed that day, but she remembers saying those words. Jesus did not heal this sister because he was too busy not saving children from the sex trade and not ending the atrocities in Syria. But even though her depression did not abate, at least this sister knew that Jesus had also suffered in the same way she had, so that they could both suffer and know that the other had also suffered or something. Second, we need to understand the need for the restoration of keys of authority in our latter days. And we need to recognize that Joseph Smith organized the women of the church after the organization that existed in Christ's church anciently. That's right. As the scriptures no doubt probably say somewhere, Jesus organized a release society. Of course, some things have changed. For instance, we no longer follow the admonition of Paul to prohibit women from speaking in church. I mean, just look at me. Woo! But mostly, it's exactly the same program of canning, quilting, and high-calorie refreshments that existed in first-century Palestine. And third, all women in the church need to see themselves as essential participants in the priesthood-directed work of salvation. Much like the drones of a bee colony mindlessly carrying out the orders of those above them, women are essential to this great work. Even if your homes are less than ideal, and by that I mean barren of priesthood power, your personal testimony and example will just have to do for your family. One sister I met in my travels has been magnifying her calling by sending her students text messages or texts because she feels it's important to communicate with the youth in the language they understand. She regularly texts them acronyms like LOL and little cartoon poops called emojis so that they will know that participation in a rigidly authoritarian and systemically sexist organization is totally on fleek. In these latter days, our youth are being exposed to difficult questions. Many of us are struggling to find answers. The good news is that there are bald assertions of dogma in response to the questions being asked. Listen to the messages of our leaders. 
We are being urged to study the Father's plan of happiness. Men and women have to get married so they can have babies. That's the plan. You might call it planned parenthood. Now, you may be tempted to point out that gay couples are no less fertile than heterosexual couples who use artificial reproductive therapies, or that the church allows postmenopausal women to enter into eternal marriages when children are no longer an issue. But don't say those things out loud. Even having those thoughts shows that you are trying to use your own brain to think about the questions of eternity when the Lord's pattern has always been to use 15 Caucasian male brains to reveal his plan to the rest of the world. Now, this may sound batshit crazy, but I sometimes worry that we Mormons are getting too politically correct, too sensitive, and too concerned about offending others. We must teach our daughters that becoming a mother is the primary purpose of their existence, even if that teaching offends those who can't have children or sets these girls up for a lifetime of worthlessness and self-loathing if they never marry or have children themselves. We must be bold in declaring that marriage is between a man and a woman or a man and a woman and any number of other dead women, or someday between a man and many live women again. Even if that statement hurts those who experience something truly weird like same-gender attraction, I say unto you with the voice of warning, The world will teach our children Satan's lies if we don't teach them our own first. I testify, sisters, that we have all the strength we need in these perilous times. And I know if you will just dedicate every waking moment to fulfilling your immutable gender role, to studying the gospel, and to doing the grunt work of the church, that someday you will have the privilege of becoming the anonymous baby factory polygamist wife to someone important. And even if this Mormon vision of a woman's exaltation sounds like something you wouldn't agree to for even one day in this life, believe me, when at last you are stripped of your womanly selfishness, you're going to want an eternity of it in the world to come. I so testify under the empty concept of a heavenly mother. Amen. The man who's so big and important We can only hope to be as big and important as him He did no wrong co-
important is what we all should be. Let's praise the man and let's hero worship better than Batman. Cause this guy was so real, sure. People killed once because they were stupid. Since they killed him once, they sure can't kill him just absolutely impressive and fill us all with awe. I think we're all in agreement on that, am I right? Uh, Rufus Ruferson here, but I, I think you knew that already, Father. Thanks for this conference. Thanks for Infants on Thrones. Thanks for the website, infantsonthrones.com, where listeners can lead comments, if they're worthy. In thine eyes. We ask thee to bless all who listen, that they will leave a five star rating and write a short, glowing review of the infants on iTunes and stop making excuses for not doing it already because only lazy listeners and cowards don't leave iTunes ratings and reviews. And we don't really approve of them very much at all, Lord, do we? No, we don't. And all these other things, Lord, we say humbly and graciously in thy name, looking forward with great anticipation to the next session of conference, which may perchance come a whole heck of a lot sooner than many of these listeners are all really aware on account of the additional listener-generated content that will be published midweek as a surprise bonus session of Infant General Conference, and shall be indeed, verily, oh Father, a great surprise as so many of thine believers and followers have, yea, verily, completely tuned me out at this point, Uh, as is the custom, except, of course, for thee, my Father in heaven. Thank, Thank you very much, Father, for hearing me out, for your continued patience and endurance. And also, Father, we thank thee for this upcoming children's choir number. Father, it may be our best mic drop moment ever to end this thing and to do it right. I mean, seriously, Father, this is going to be pretty damn amazing, and I don't say damn much in conference prayers, only when evoking fear, usually, I'll say this sometimes if I'm evoking fear, but uh, this time, when I'm saying it, it's really, really special and sacred, but you already know that. But I just want you to know that that I know that you know it, and I agree with you, Father. We all do. We'll, we'll come to an agreement in a moment here vocally. You'll hear it. You probably already know it's coming. 
But of course, I could keep going, Lord, and uh, many of thine servants often do. Uh, this is, after all, my moment to shine in general conference, saying this prayer and all. So thank you, Lord, for DVRs that I can enjoy this moment over and over again with mine posterity in the millennial eons to come. And these things I once again begin to say and to close, verily in thy holy name, yea, even that name which is holier than any other name that ever, ever was, yea, that only those truly endowed with thy power can even begin to imagine the pronunciation of in the pure Adamic as taught to us in our holy temples. Yea, Father, that very, very special name in which we close our prayer that shall not be ever. Your insincere loquaciousness annoys me. This is about family. This is about love, and especially the love of the Savior. On November the 5th, the church made some changes to its handbook in relation to same-sex marriage and its policy towards the children of same-sex marriage partners. We regard same-sex marriage as a particularly grievous sin.
disavow the 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 idea of same-sex marriage. There are no homosexual members of the church.